Morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's lovely to see you all and so good to be together as a church family. And um, wow, I just love the example of um, years of, of following Jesus uh, that Pete and Alex have demonstrated and that Peter Avalone um, referenced as well. Um, doesn't look old enough to be uh, 50 years following Jesus, but wow, just I hope I'm as passionate for Jesus as you guys um, at, at that age. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, keep going in the Lord. Um, just before I start, actually, a uh, very quick thing um, that Sarah's going to come and uh, tell us about. Um, we're doing an event on a Saturday morning called Reading the Bible, and Sarah's going to tell you a little bit about that. Yeah, hi everyone. Um, we'd love to invite you to come and join us for our in-person Reading the Bible event next Saturday. Uh, Reading the Bible is a ministry where I've suggested we kind of read the Bible, but sort of study the Bible together, study together, ask questions, can kind of learn together learn from one another, and kind of deepen our discipleship as we do. We're going to be looking at Peter um, next week. Peter is one of my absolute favourite people in the Bible. He was a close disciple of Jesus, he became a leader of the early church, and he wrote some of the letters that form the New Testament in our Bibles. And one of my favourite things about Peter, we know more about his mistakes than most other people in the New Testament, and yet when you read his letters, you just see how much the life he led with Jesus shapes everything for him. Decades later, that is still the thing that he clings to, like we've just been talking about as well. And so I'm really excited to learn from that, to learn uh, what he has to teach us about our ongoing discipleship in all, all seasons of life, all circumstances. So come along and join us. We'll be doors open at 9.30. We'll start 9.45 sharp, so be on time. And we will be done by 12. Hope to see you there. Great. Thanks, Sarah. Um, yeah, can't wait for that. I'm looking forward to it a whole lot. Um, it's, been, um, it's been quite a few years, hasn't it? In sort of particularly unstable times, I suppose, when historians look back on our years. When, um, if we look back just in our nation, uh, the sort of the turmoil of all that uh, the Brexit vote was kind of years back, and then obviously fresh off the back of that, we had the worldwide pandemic, didn't we? And then um, as things are sort of clearing from there, the war in Ukraine started, a number of wars around the world too that perhaps don't get sort of um, talked about as much. But then that uh, led to a, an energy crisis, which then uh, has sort of joined with a food supply crisis, doesn't it? And we're living in the midst of cost of living crisis, aren't we? In a, a sort of political bloodbath, I suppose, at the moment. I think it's summed up really well by um, the Sky News journalist, um, Alan McGuinness, who um, tweeted this a couple of weeks ago. My son has lived through four chancellors, three home secretaries, two prime ministers, which is now three, by the way, and two monarchs. He's four months old. <laughs> In fact, um, this week, uh, Collins, the, the dictionary publishers, uh, issued their word of the year, um, a sort of a, a word or concept that captures something of the current cultural moment. And uh, they chose the word permacrisis, um, which uh, defined as an extended period of instability and insecurity, a permanent crisis, is, if you like. Uh, thanks, I can read that down. So, uh, and as well as the, the volatility that we're seeing in, in, in the world around us, we're also, I don't know if you notice, living in a society marked by incredible confusion, aren't we? Confusion from uh, the impact of social media through to what is the true me? Um, confusion as to uh, the meaning of sexual activity through to the definition of gender. Uh, confusion as to um, from how we see our bodies through to how we embrace our limits. 
Now, the Bible, as um, Sarah was just referring to, we believe is the word of God, that it is living and active, that it is infallible, that it is inerrant, that everything in it is exactly as uh, God wanted it to be, that it speaks into our life, that it is authoritative in all matters of life and faith, that is God's revelation of himself, of his story into which we are brought. And you know, sometimes when we talk about sort of current cultural climate, we can hear phrases like, unprecedented times. Actually, when we read the scriptures, we see that our times are not actually that unprecedented. There are plenty of instances in scripture that speak to us as to how we can live when the world around us seems in such chaos, that the Bible brings clarity in a world of confusion, that it brings hope in a world of hate, that its words have power in a world of polarization. And so I I want to speak this morning on three words that seem particularly apt for our day as we finish our series in Esther that we've been going through um, over um, the last uh, few weeks. Um, We're going to be covering Esther chapter 7 through to 10 this morning, so it's going to be quite a ride. I'll try not to speak at one and a half speeds, but um, fasten your seatbelts. Just to sort of put us in the picture of the story so far, so... We, we are based in uh, the historical Persian Empire. Uh, we have the character Esther, who is, uh, who is queen uh, in this empire, that she's a, um, a, a Jewish woman. Uh, her cousin Mordecai is also around. He's, he's a Jew. And then there is the king's right-hand man, who is the sort of pantomime villain, the bad guy, um, Haman, who has uh, tried to destroy the Jews from within the Persian Empire. And he has set in motion um, this, this sort of day in the future where all of the Jews, all of the people of God will be destroyed uh, within the empire. And so then we see in, in chapter four, um, Esther and Mordecai, uh, her cousin, uh, kind of chatting together and Esther agreeing that she will go before the king to try and see if they can do something about this. Something that then happens in chapter five would have been incredibly dangerous for her uh, because she hadn't been summoned by the king. People could be put to death for that sort of thing. And so she approaches the king and um, he extends his golden scepter to her, which means she is sort of accepted into his presence. And she asks if she can hold a feast for the king and his right-hand man, the bad guy, Haman, which is then what we see in chapter five and six. In fact, two feasts where this is the first one. And um, as they are happening, uh, the bad guy, Haman, has uh, this plan in place uh, to hang on a great big beam Esther's cousin, Mordecai, as this first feast um, is happening. But then in a twist of events, chapter six ends with the king actually honoring Esther's cousin Mordecai, much to the embarrassment of the bad guy, Haman. And that takes us up to, as Callum drew the analogy last week, the start of the second half. After a game-changing team talk at halftime, the people of God have very much been losing uh, in the first half. But Esther now has the ear of the king, and the comeback is well and truly on. Now, we're going to jump into Esther chapter 8 in a moment. So if you have a Bible, then do um, uh, turn there. Uh, But in Esther 7, in between, just to sort of bring the story up to speed, what's happened is that we've had the second feast that Esther holds. And what we're finding there, Esther clearly has the king's favor. He's very much uh, listening to her. And so she reveals everything. 
She reveals that she too is a Jew, part of the, the people of God who are under this sentence of, of destruction um, uh, to, to come kind of in, in uh, several months from, from the events described. She also reveals that it is Haman, the bad guy, who is behind um, this whole plot uh, to kill the Jews. And she has to be very careful in the way that she words it because it was, of course, the king himself who signed the edict off. And the whole instance leaves Haman, the bad guy, absolutely terrified. And the king gets very angry. He storms out of the room, likely because this whole thing will cause him yet further reputational damage. And, and what we find is Haman pleading for his life before Esther on the couch. He falls down before her, which is very ironic because the whole thing started when Mordecai, Esther's cousin, refused to fall down before this guy, Haman. And the king comes back in. He sees Haman um, at Esther's couch pleading uh, for his life. Um, but um, one of the uh, old Jewish commentaries uh, says that the angel Gabriel shoved him onto the couch such that um, the, the king's perception, that, that is not likely true, but they, they had all sorts of funny ideas. Um, the king's perception is that he is assaulting, he's sexually assaulting Esther. And so the king has him hanged, in fact, on the very beam where Haman intended to kill Esther's cousin Mordecai. And the king's anger gets satisfied. And that takes us right up to the start, a whirlwind tour of Esther chapter 8. And here is what it says. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which Haman had previously, which he'd taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Esther gets Haman's property. Mordecai gets uh, the king's signet ring. The favor and delegated authority of the king are now on these people, part of the people of God. And that leads us to the first words for today that is apt for our times. And that is the word victory the word victory. Because in Esther chapter eight, the enemy has been defeated. The sentence of death could no longer hold Esther or Mordecai, who remember are the, the Christ figures, the ones whose activity foreshadowed the work of Jesus himself. The sentence of death could no longer hold them down. They are, as it were, granted life by the king. But for Haman, the very means by which he meant to bring death to Mordecai actually becomes the place where he is overthrown. He's disarmed, he's defeated, he's destroyed. And guys, that must be the starting place for us, knowing how to live in such chaotic times. That Jesus Christ has won the victory on the cross. That our sin, that the things where we have turned away from God's best has been completely forgiven and washed clean. That our shame has been taken away. That death no longer has mastery over us because we will live with him forever. That he is with us by the Holy Spirit. That he promises to keep us until the very end of the age. The story is famously told of, of the teacher before his class with a, a, a glass jar on his desk. 
And he starts to get out this, um, this uh, basket of rocks and put these rocks into this glass jar. And they're, they're fairly large. He puts two or three of them in and kind of the, the jar is full. And the teacher asked the class, how many of you think that the jar is full right now? And he obviously can't fit any more in. And so they, they put their hands up. And so from under his desk, he gets out a box of pebbles. And he starts to put the pebbles in around the rocks. And the class think, oh, OK, I, I know what you're doing then. And so he fills them up to the top. And he asks again, how many of you think this glass jar is full? And of course, they all raise their hand again. At which point he gets out a, a, a basket, a bag of sand or something of sand and starts to pour the sand in around the pebbles. And they're getting the idea now. They, OK, all right, he's got us. So yes, this is now full. And then finally, he gets out a jug of water, pours it in, and no one's uh, willing to put their hand up because they think, what, and what on earth is, is still to come? And he turns to them, he says, you really have to get the big rocks in your life in first. And folks, this is the big rock that needs to go into our life first, who we are in Jesus Christ. That we, as Paul wrote in Ephesians, are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Not something for us to aspire to, something that Jesus has won on the cross. That he says, in love, he predestined, that he set us for adoption as sons, as children of the most high God. That Paul writes elsewhere that if we are children, then also we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We will share in his inheritance. That we have been given of God the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, changing us from the inside out, permanently with us, who testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That he's not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline that we have permanent access to go before the throne because of the finished work of Jesus, that the favor of God is on our lives because of what Jesus has done, that even in the trials of life, we get to enjoy the spoils of his victory, that nothing can happen to us that can defeat or remove any of it. This is the first rock that goes in in our lives, who we are in Jesus Christ. I'm reading a great book at the moment um, by a woman called Nancy Pierce. It's called Love Thy Body. It's looking at the way the world around us um, sees um, the body. And she says this great quote. She says, to know who we are, we need not look inwards to what we feel, nor outwards to what others say about us but upwards to the king on the throne who has made us his own. That is the first rock that has to go in in our lives. First word, victory. But the second word is the word battle. And we're going to pick the story up in Esther uh, chapter 8, verse 3. And uh, here's what it says. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagites and the plot that he devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? 
Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regards to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. In Esther chapter 8, the victory is won, but the battle continues. We know in the story that the enemy, Haman, who is at the root, that the source of all of the evil in the empire, is defeated now. We know in the story, victory is assured. But we can still see the results of the enemy's work all around. Now for Esther and Mordecai, who remember other Jesus figures, the edict setting the date for the Jews to be destroyed still exists. We're told that in verse 8. And it needs the new reality of their authority to be made known. It needs their kingdom to come, if you like, to overcome the work of Haman. Now for us, we can easily, all of us, we could think of personal or societal or global instances where the work of the defeated Satan is still wreaking havoc and needs to come under the lordship of Christ. And so what do we do? Well, like Esther, we have to adopt a battle mindset, a battle mindset. Look at what Esther does. She pleads with the king, verse three to five. She identifies with the people of God in verse five. She expresses her burden in verse six. She takes a stand against evil as she pleads before the king. And as we'll come to see in a moment, Esther and Mordecai issue what one commentator calls a counter-decree of life, pushing back Haman's work of destruction. The point is, they do something about the destruction that they see. They have a battle mindset. I was um, chatting with one of the um, leaders in, in the church just, just this week who was describing a number of situations that they've been involved in pastorally, where the root of the situation was um, that, that the people involved did not expect to suffer in the Christian life. And so when hardship and trial came, questions were starting to be asked. Sort of, is, is God with me? Has God abandoned me? And yet Jesus said, like, in, in this life, you, you will have many troubles. Ben used to, uh, there's, there's a battle to fight. Like, we, we, will, we will take hits. There's a battle going on, isn't it? Ben used a great um, illustration in, in one of his preachers a couple of months back um, about sometimes in, um, in, we, we can pitch Christian life as almost like um, thinking that we're on some luxury yacht or something. And it kind of, you know, I've never been on a luxury yacht. I'm just imagining this. You can imagine your own things, but sort of sat there, nice chair, a nice kind of drink. It's calm, it's peaceful, it's sunny. It's all about comfort, isn't it? It's all about peace. It's about sort of, resting, you rest, I suppose holidays are as well, aren't they? Like that kind of, when you, the aim of holiday, like you, that is that you are rested. And yet actually the truer biblical description of the Christian life is that instead we are on a battleship. Where if you, if you think of, of a battleship, like everything you do is deliberate. And the point of being on that battleship is the end mission. And it very much is not about you and your comfort and your rest. It's about achieving the mission that you're there for. Esther could very easily have chosen the yacht mentality. Like she's queen. Like she's got the ear of the king. The, the one who wants her and her people dead is himself now dead. 
She could have said, oh, well, I'm fine, so I'll just sit back. But instead, she identifies with the people of God, expresses the burden. I cannot bear to sit back when there is so much going on around and yet knowing the promises of God that were over her. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You ever notice that's why discipleship's so hard? It's because it's not about self-actualization. It's about self-surrender. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's about dying to the self. Guys, to follow Jesus is to have this battle mentality. Like we know that the battle belongs to him, right? We fight it as we follow him. We're fighting Satan. We're fighting the sin that we see in ourselves and others. So the, the battle is primarily spiritual. It's not with the person who disagrees with our perspective. Ephesians 6 says that, doesn't it? It's not with flesh and blood. We're called to love that person. It's with the ideas or the values that stand against the truth of the word of God. It's with the forces of evil that underlie them. It's with the sin that we see in ourselves and in others. In fact, Paul made the same point. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. We often talk, don't we, about how different kind of activities of the Christian life have, have power in them. We talk a lot about kind of engaging with the word of God. And, and even here in the story, for Esther and Mordecai, God's not referenced directly in the text, but the implication is that they are, <clears throat> excuse me, clinging onto the covenant promises of God. And that's, that's what we do as, as, as we read and engage with this word. Like that, that's why we do things like reading the Bible. It's that together we can cling onto the promises of God. Or maybe it's our prayer life as, as a church that we talk about. And you can see here in the story that Esther is pleading before the king just as we too now have access to come before the king because of the work of Jesus. And so we pray. We pray in the next couple of weeks, we've got some guest speakers coming along. We've got Tim Suffield from King's Church, Birmingham, one of the Grace Connection churches. And the week after, we've got Wendy Mann, who's a, a friend of Grace Church. And um, let, let's pray that those Sundays are times of power encounter and breakthrough and they shape us. Right now, like we've, as you can see in the corner, we've, we've started the building work to put in the commercial kitchen over there. And there's been some wonderful sacrificial giving to, to make that happen. But right now, as, as we said in the, um, the video that we sent out a couple of weeks ago, we, know, we don't quite have the funds to, um, to put the lift to get, us, uh, to get up to the first floor. And so we were applying, as was always uh, uh, the plan, for a, a number of grants to try and kind of facilitate that. Let's pray them in as a church. Let's pray that we can do that so that our building can reflect the welcome of God that, um, that he gives to us all. Living the Christian life with a battle mindset has power. It's the same when we host people around our tables or include people in our social occasion. It's the same when we worship together. It's warfare. Sometimes we express that kind of overtly, but as we worship, we're doing warfare. We're doing spiritual warfare, declaring the goodness of Jesus, changing our perspectives, placing us so that he can fill us afresh with him and be light and, 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 and salt in, in the world around us. It's the same when we build community. We had a, a light party uh, for the kids here this week so they can 
No, the goodness of Jesus, the light of the world, rather than the, the darkness of all that gets celebrated in Halloween just on Monday. We had a bonfire night amongst our young adults last night. Kind of These events, they, they had loads of people there who aren't yet Christians, wouldn't call themselves a, a follower of Jesus. In, in fact, of, of those events, there are still people in and around Grace Church to this day from these same events last year. See, these things, they fight back the darkness. Spiritual warfare isn't about us kind of shouting a lot. It's about us doing what we do deliberately, knowing that we are on the mission of Jesus. Guys, do we, do we know the necessity of this battle mindset in following Jesus? Because as we do, what we find is that the Spirit commits us to his mission, to the mission of God. And that's the third and final word that we'll finish with, the word mission. And we're going to have a look at the, this counter-decree of life that Esther and Mordecai um, uh, uh, put together. And there's a bit of detail in it. So it's, it's worth just knowing that the, the wording of it matches exactly and thus undoes all of the wording that Haman's own decree, his own edict back in chapter three, the one that was going to destroy the Jews, all that that set, this is the same wording, just undoing what, um, what he'd done. And so it says this in verse nine, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. An edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, the officials, the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script, just as Haman's decree had been written, and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring, just as Haman had done. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying... Here's the key, that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy and to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and that's the same day where Haman had set for the Jews to be destroyed. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And then what goes on to happen in, in chapter nine, which is entitled, The Jews Destroy Their Enemies, that would be an interesting one to preach on, wouldn't it? Um, is that on the very day that the Jews were meant to themselves be destroyed, plus an extra day that Esther requests, they end up defeating their enemies in an act of holy war. And we haven't quite got time to kind of go into what's going on there. But there's a lot of Old Testament, previous Old Testament references being fulfilled. Now, just like the Jews in Esther chapter nine, we too are on a mission from God, right? Like we were at a training context recently over in Peterborough and they get all sorts of people in. They had a guy called Ed Stetzer, who's a sort of church historian, statistician uh, speaking, who uh, used the phrase a number of times in his message actually, which I think is why I remember it. And he said this, the moment we are in culturally, the moment we are in does not affect the mission we are on. The moment we're in does not affect the mission that we are on. Like we know that we have the victory as we've seen. We know that the battle still rages around us. It's clear for us all to see. 
But because it does, the mission continues. Only our motivation is that now we know the end result, don't we? We know where it's going. We know, just like uh, the Jews in, in Esther chapter 9, it gives us a foretaste that, that God will destroy all evil and injustice in the world. We know where the story's heading to a world restored and made new. With no tears, no mourning, no pain. God dwelling with his people forever. And so if we know that the victory has been won, and yet we know that the battle is not over but continues, then this story here in Esther chapter 7 through 10 issues a rallying cry to us all as to the mission of God once again, because we know how the story ends. I love the example uh, living this out of Johnny Erickson Tudder, who's um, a, a woman who's a, a Christian author and speaker. She's in her 70s now. Uh, she's paralyzed from the neck downwards um, ever since a, a diving accident as a teenager. And she remarks how the first thing that she plans to do with her new resurrection body is to fall on her feet before Jesus in worship. She's doing some great things for God, like writing, speaking, kind of she's a um, kind of passion that uh, the voice of uh, the disabled is, is hurt. Um, she's doing it all because she knows the end of the story. She knows that the victory is won. It, it's clear all around her, even in her own life, that the battle continues. But she knows what's to come. And in cultural moments like we are going through in 2022, just like ex Esther experienced in her day, what part, I wonder, is God asking you to play in that vision statement that Ben referenced earlier? That we would build a thriving community that reaches Nottingham with the gospel and replicates what we do across the UK. I know that for some of us, that will mean particular things that God has laid on our hearts. For others of us, that might just mean showing up. You know, in the battles and the trials of life, sometimes just being here together amongst the people of God, serving on a team, being at your home group, that, that is what God has given you grace to do in the moment. For others, that will mean kind of pushing into things that God has put on your heart, taking steps of faith, contributing in worship or starting a discipleship group, sharing faith with your friend, whatever it means, God will speak to you about it. But Esther chapter 10 finishes with a three-verse summary of, of the whole story. But I want to finish with the end of chapter 8, because this is who we are. This is the moment that we are fighting in. And it says this, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. We're royalty now. Jesus has given us his authority. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And even in the midst of the battle, that is our story too, that we can know the light of Jesus, the gladness of the gospel, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the honor of the people of God. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Folks, the enemy has been defeated. The battle continues to rage. And so, therefore, does the mission of God. Why don't we stand together? Let's have the band up.